Good morning. My name is Scott Ravely. I'm happy to be with you this morning. Would you please join me as we pray? Our great God and Father who rides on the heavens for our help, who is near to the brokenhearted and is powerful above all gods, we come to you and ask that we would really believe that you are who you say you are. We pray that our hearts would be happy as they uh, ought to be, as happy as your word says that they should be. And so, Father, we need your help to trust you, to love you as we should. This is, this is a moment where we need your supernatural intervention. Don't let us just go through this uh, hour without a touch from your spirit. And may you open our eyes to see what you have for us in your word now, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we are products of our times. We have the assets and we have the liabilities of the 21st century. One of the liabilities we have is an anti-supernatural view of the world. We have been discipled, whether we like it or not, to see the world in terms of science, in terms of natural causes, and really no more. We and those around us experience the world as flat. Nothing outside the plane of natural causes ever happens. We come then to the Bible as though it too is flat. The Bible though is not flat because reality is not flat. The Bible says there's a God in heaven who reigns over the world and all that's in it. And no, he doesn't just reign over a flat world. He reigns over a multidimensional world that includes a physical world certainly, but encompasses much more. Yet, we, in our view of the world, default to a simple, flat, natural explanation about how some of the things that we see might take place. And we do that for miracles in the Bible. We do it for everything. Because we've been trained to look for the flat, natural explanation first. I mean, think about what this means for our time. I can hardly believe how completely we have bought into and have grown into flat people who judge the world flatly. So, how do you expect that we are going to get through this virus? Well, let me guess. Science, masks, distance, vaccine. Our hope is in what is here and in what is flat. How do we expect to get to a more peaceful world where there isn't injustice and riots? Well, policies, institutional reform, elections, statements, flat. Again, the world for us is flat. 
Our expectation is that what we do will make the difference and nothing else. And I think I can say that you probably view the world as flat because I know I default to a flat view of the world that does not take into account the supernatural at all. And when we do that, we miss the greater reality that is actually ever-present in our world. It is to our eternal detriment that we miss the supernatural when we read our Bibles and when we look at the world. I want to start here because Psalm 68 is about that greater eternal and unseen reality. Our God is portrayed in this psalm as the unseen ruler over all gods, over all nations, over all kings, and over the physical realm. In Psalm 68, we see Yahweh is God above all gods, and he makes his people glad that they belong to him. The God of Israel establishes himself as a God above all gods in his home, his holy mountain, chief above all mountains, and his people happily his. That said, as I tell you what this means, I want you to know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to see or explain. But I'll do my best to show my work so that you can see where I come up with this. But I do want to say it's not going to be easy. In fact, one commentator wrote, the difficulties of interpreting Psalm 68 are almost legendary. Psalm 68 has always been considered with justice as one of the most difficult of the Psalms. So let's look at this most difficult psalm and see that God's victory over all of his spiritual rivals will produce happiness in his people and praise for his awesomeness. You can think of Psalm 68 uh, or the outline, if you want, as shaped like a target. There's an outer ring and then there's an inner ring and then there's a bullseye. And it's this outer ring that tells us that God's people are happy people and they will end up praising him. So let's start from the outside in and see that this psalm begins with joy and ends with praise. Now these first few verses have already been read, but I want you to notice how the first and the last verses tie together. There is a significant and unique connection between verse 4 and verse 33. Verse 4 says he rides through the desert. And verse 33 says he rides through the heavens, the ancient heavens. There is a timeless ride like the wind aspect to God and to his victory. This rider signals for us that we are not dealing with something, something that is merely on this flat plane. Because even in the way it speaks of him as the rider on the ancient heavens, he is otherworldly. 
This victory that it's going to talk about is no mere long march by an exhausted army to a skin-of-the-teeth victory. No, this is a conqueror who can fly through any resistance. And he has been doing that throughout history. We're clearly introduced to the theme of the psalm in the first couple of verses. It's a song about God's war with his enemies. A lot of times in the psalms, God's enemies are David's enemies. And here in this psalm, the enemies are not named. But the interesting thing is the geography of this psalm is not the geography of David. Of the places mentioned in this psalm, only Jerusalem, in verse 29, is part of David's life. And so the routing of these unidentified enemies is significant because I maintain that these enemies and kings mentioned here are mere proxies for the deities that they worship. These gods, these gods with the little g, are in open rebellion against God and in rivalry with him. And they are animating these kings and these nations to be, be God's enemies. Now, I know I'm saying this before I'm showing it, but I want you to think about this because clearly this is a non-flat view of the world and a non-flat understanding of the Bible. After all, think about this. The, the big deal about the Canaanites and the Philistines and even the Egyptians was not their ethnic heritage it was their gods. The ancient people believed not in sheer force that the strongest army would win. They believed that the army with the strongest God would win. And there was a spiritual component to all of life and especially to warfare. Their world was definitely not flat. Or another way to conceive of this is to think about idols. Idols generally have a double reference. They are wood or stone or maybe gold. And some of the, some of the scriptures portray them like this and even mock them. That part of the idol was made into a walking stick and part of the idol is, is a, a statue. And it makes fun of them. And we're comfortable with that description of idols because idols are inanimate and they're stupid. Idolatry is stupid. Yet, if they were only wood and only stone, they wouldn't be any bigger deal than your bowling trophy. Why then is there such a prohibition against idolatry? Because the idols represent other gods. The gods of the people that surrounded the people of God. And as such, they were rivals for the hearts of God's people. That's why they were such a threat. That's why intermarriage was a problem. That's why idolatry was a problem. That's why centralized worship was important. You need to know that even today, 
there are many things not represented by mere figurines that are rivals for the hearts of God's people. We are all in danger of idolatry, even if we don't have a physical idol. So yes, I think there's more happening here than meets the eye. God rides out um, to battle. And then verses 3 and 4 show us the overflowing gladness of God's people. It's like David can't pack enough joy into these verses. The joy comes not because of their circumstances, their, their prosperity, but because of the benefits of the victory of God over his enemies. Listen to the language. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exult before him. All of those words, exult, lift up song, be glad, be jubilant with joy, it's as though he can't state strongly enough the happiness that belongs to the people of God when he is their victory. It's impossible to overstate the happiness of what it means to belong to this God who rides in the desert and rides on the ancient heavens. Then continuing, the character of God is on display. It isn't just the joy of his people. The, the joy rests in his victory and in his character. And the character of God's on display. And I don't know if there's a more beautiful description of the compassion and the kindness and the concern for justice in the person of God than there is here. Look at verse 5. He is father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home and leads out the prisoners to prosperity. The character of life under the rule of God, who is God above all gods, is safe, it's generous, it's kind. He is a father to the fatherless. Those who need him most, he is closest to. Those who need his protection, he protects. Those who need his provision, he provides for. Those who are lonely, he is close to. And so the character of God is such that he loves and shows compassion to his people. They experience not just his military victory and his power, they experience his kindness as well. The psalm ends much like it starts with a celebration then of God and his power. He has commanded his power, it says in verse 28. But then in verse 35, he shares it with his people. He rules over Israel and the nations and he is awesome. Can I just request that you reserve that word for God? God is awesome. He alone is awesome. There are a lot of things that we use that word for that are not awesome. 
And yet the celebration of what it means to belong to God and to realize who he is in this whole uh, universe is to realize God is awesome and I am happy to belong to him. Well, let me read the parts of this psalm that have not been read yet because that's going to be the, the center of our bullseye here. Verse 8, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women announce the news. Who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now his sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your foot, your feet in their blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great sanctuary, in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. So here we see God is unrivaled and he is superior to all other gods. This next ring, you might say, of the bullseye, the happiness of God's people being on the outside, then the victory of God here being uh, closer to the center makes it clear that God wins and he does it in decisive fashion. 
And as we move to the middle of the psalm, it becomes clear that this is a different kind of battle. Verse 6, God marches out. And we find in verses 7 through 9, all of the elements come to his aid, the rain and everything, and it restores his creation. This two-dimensional flat world is definitely under his control. It serves him and he rules over it. This victory is unbelievably decisive. Beginning in verse 11, there is an immediate announcement of the victory. In fact, this victory is so unusual and so magnificent that it is the women who announce it. It is the women who divide the spoils while the men simply hang around the farm. It's the men who who all they do is lie down in the sheepfolds. Not exactly your uh, powerful warriors. It's announced by weakness. And then it says the the doves with silver wings and gold pinions And it just out of the blue talks about this dove. And I think you can think of it as a shimmering dove or a series of shimmering doves released at the sign of victory, like you might see at the Olympics. It symbolizes peace and victory, a peace so great that it's spoken of in hyperbole as though the doves had silver wings and gold pinions. And as the the victory is described like this, the the first half, the, the, the back half of this psalm also rings with unusual signs of victory. It says that Benjamin is in the lead. Benjamin, it also says, is the least significant. That means that this is not a normal military victory. It is a victory in which weakness not strength, is celebrated. Which is highly unusual. There's really no visible uh, sign of a conflict. There is the announcement that that God marches out to war and then the victory is announced. It's just like that. And the participants are noted for their weakness, not their strength. Then it goes on to say that the dogs even will have their spoils of victory. And the kingdoms of the earth far removed from Egypt and Cush will come and pay tribute to God, the king above all gods. And so his victory is unique. We have the happiness of his people and the uniqueness of his victory. And now I want to show you what I think is closer to the heart, the nature of the battle. Because Psalm 68 presents God as the God above all gods. Who makes his people happy that they belong to him. We have a 3D view of the world here that includes 
unseen spiritual powers competing with the true God for superiority, for glory, and for the affections of his people. This is the fundamental nature of spiritual warfare. And that's what we see in Psalm 68. So as you look at it, you'll notice that in verse 14, it begins to get weird or unusual, as if doves with uh, silver wings and gold pinions isn't weird. But it talks about the mountains, and it talks about Zalman. Where is that? Sounds like it's in Middle Earth somewhere. What is the significance of Bashan? And why does he talk about Sinai? I want to point you to several clues that help me see that what is going on here is really not about what is seen, but about what is unseen. Not about what is flat, but about what is there in the spiritual world opposing God. And the spiritual world that he conquers and reigns over. So here's the first clue. This psalm fits no known situation in David's life. People have taken guesses about when it was written, but that's all they are. There is no battlefield that's talked about here even though the psalm is clearly about a conquest. As far as we know, David never went to Sinai or Bashan. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem is the only geography in the psalm that corresponds with David in space. It corresponds with David in space, but not in time, because as you may recall, the temple wasn't built when David was alive. The scripture's clear. He had a vision that there would be a temple, but it wasn't built. And so the geography is part of it. The, the second part of the geography that forms a second clue is that the mountains here are important. And they're unusual mountains. There's Mount Zalman. There's the many-peaked mountains of Bashan. And there's Mount Sinai. The snow on Zalman, verse 14, is another rapid illusion that we can scarcely catch. While there may have been a Mount Zalman down near Shechem, it probably is not the mountain to which this refers because the word Zalman uh, appears to mean black mountain. And it's probably a term for a different mountain that's on the borders of Bashan. And so there is this black mountain that is dramatically covered with snow at the victory of God. Now, another piece of this is that mountains are one of the clues in the scriptures that something supernatural is going on. This is why when God in his glory appears, he often appears on mountains. Why, this is why Mount Sinai and Mount Zion are important. Because they are, in some respect, the meeting place with God. Now, one of our liabilities 
is that we live in Oregon. And we would, by all respects, classify Mount Zion as sort of a medium-sized hill, almost an insult to the word mountain. Yet, when it's all you have, you recognize that it is a high place, a meeting place for the gods. In fact, that's, that's how it is. The mountains were believed to be the dwelling places of the gods. The peaks or the high points were where gods, the gods dwelt and interacted with people. In some respect, when you see references to mountains, you can think of temples. Even the Garden of Eden is referred to this way. It's treated as a temple and then is cross-referenced as a mountain. Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14 says this about the Garden of Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Now, when Ezekiel's talking about this cherub, is he talking about the cherub being in Eden or on the holy mountain of God? Or both? You see, Eden is a mountain in this image. And why is that important? It's important because God is there. The mountains or the high places and the dwelling of God, you might think of even as a temple. This is why when you read through this, the, the kings and the, and the chronicles and the kings didn't tear down the high places, that's why it's a problem. Because it was the high places that people would go in the hopes of interacting with the gods. And when they weren't talking about Yahweh, their God they were hoping that some other god, little g, would meet them there. And that's the problem. And so that's why so much is written about God establishing his worship in one place on Mount Zion. Another aspect of this mountain theme here is... Um, in verse 15, the name for God, Shaddai, is sometimes translated Almighty. And that name, Shaddai, is connected with the mountains. The theological word book of the Old Testament says of this name that the most widely accepted uh, explanation of this name is that Shaddai is connected with Akkadian words, Shadu, or mountain. Thus, El Shaddai would translate into English something like God of the mountain. That is, God's abode. And so all of these many-peaked mountains of Bashan and Mount Zalman have to do with the dwelling places of the gods. 
Another thing you may find interesting, even the final spiritual battle in Revelation has to do with a mountain, Armageddon. It's a compound word from Har, mountain, and Megiddo, the location of the battle. And so we have this mountain that is or this series of mountains that are contested by the gods. Bashan is another clue. Bashan is the region north of Israel. The north is the place from which disaster comes. In the north, Baal finds his home. In the New Testament, it's, this is the area of Caesarea Philippi, the location of what was known as the gates of hell. When, when uh, Peter made his great confession, this is where they were. And Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. This area was known to be a, or thought to be a portal of the underworld. See, all of a sudden you see the world's not flat, right? This Bashan area is important uh, in the history of Israel because one of the most unusual and unexplainable victories that is cited over and over and over throughout the Old Testament is Israel's victory over Og, king of Bashan. There are two kings, Sion and Og. And Og is a big deal, literally a big deal. He's a giant. He is believed to be descended from the gods. He's a descendant of the Rephaim, considered a demagogue at the least. And so Bashan gives us a clue that this is not merely just some sort of map exercise, but there is a spiritual reality brewing that God is battling. Clue number four. Very simply, the word holy or holy place, its derivatives, repeat throughout the psalm. In other words, the word holy means set apart, and God is setting himself apart from all of these other gods. In his character is different. His power is different. He, in who he is and what he does for his people, is set apart from these other gods. And then clue number five, Sinai appears here twice and it's the final appearance in the old testament and it has nothing to do apparently with the giving of the law but rather it has to do with the dwelling place of the god of israel and so what is contested here is the ownership and the dwelling place of the god of israel who is going to win the battle for the nations in the battle of supremacy between these rivaling deities? God is fighting for his home, and he is extending it in Psalm 68 from Sinai to Bashan to Cush or Africa. He ends up with his temple in Jerusalem from which he shall receive gifts from kings. 
And so I would maintain that all of these references are references to the spiritual realities that empower or animate the enemies of God, and the spiritual conflict is real. Behind every nation, there's a king. Behind every king, there's a spiritual reality that empowers its rebellion against God. And so, it is a victory here in Psalm 68 that is decisive and complete. The rivalry is most explicit in verse 16. Why do you look with hatred or envy? Why do you look with envy, O many-peaked mountain? It's a mount that God desires for his abode where Yahweh will dwell forever. You see, I mean, you're going to think, oh, well, let's read this literally. I mean, are the mountains really envious of one another? Or is he speaking here in terms of some kind of rivalry where those that inhabit those northern mountains are envious of God, the true God. So if we center in on the spiritual nature of this conflict, we'll realize that it is about the establishment of the dwelling place of God forever. In the abode of Baal and Mot in the north is going to be conquered by God. Those who live there, those gods, Baal and Mot, Dagon, others, are envious of Sinai and Jerusalem because of the awesomeness of God and the happiness of his people. So the thrust of this psalm is a triumph of God over all his rivals. He establishes himself as the God above all God for the overwhelming happiness of his people. So let me get here to the heart of this, if, if you would, the center of the bullseye. Because I think it's in verse 18, this procession that we see in verse 18, that's the heart of the psalm. It's picked up again in verses 24 through 27, but here in 18, it's the heart. Because the battle is over, and God's secure, eternal, and regal dwelling is settled once and for all. And then there is this parade, this procession of victory. Picking up in verse 18. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This parade, this celebration of victory, is the source of confidence and joy mentioned in the beginning and ending of the psalm, but it's more than that. It is a signpost for us that points us not only to the fact that God has won the victory, but how he has won this decisive victory. I know it's a signpost because the Apostle Paul picks this signpost up in Ephesians 4. When he talks about the unity and the uh, 
singularity of there being one God. He says there's one body, one spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 4. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So Paul quotes verse 18. And he changes the ending. In our psalm, it says that, that uh, he receives gifts from men, even the stubborn and rebellious ones. And in Ephesians, he says he distributes gifts to men. Which I simply take to mean that this victory that was won was so decisive. And it, when, especially when viewed from the backside of the cross, that not only does he receive rewards from those who are rebellious, but then he distributes from his surplus. The victory to which this psalm points is the victory of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Talking about the, the descending and the ascending of Christ. The ultimate means of God's final victory is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you're welcome to be skeptical. You might say, oh, I don't see where he's getting this victory of God over the gods with the little g. I don't know that I see it happen on the cross. Let me add at least one more amazing detail. You may remember Psalm 22. It's a beautiful psalm, and Jesus had it in his mind and quoted it as he hung on the cross. He quoted it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm talks about the mockery Jesus endured centuries later, almost word for word. It speaks of them casting lots for his clothes. It speaks about the method of death unknown at the time in which you can see a person's bones. And it also says this, in Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Psalmist in Psalm 22 recognized the spiritual reality surrounding what looked like a flat two-dimensional execution of the son of a carpenter. These bulls of Bashan, a demonic horde, a cadre of rival deities encompassed the dying Savior. They are the forces of spiritual evil that thought in the moment they were winning when in fact they were securing their own defeat. That's why in talking about the cross, Paul says this in Colossians 2.15, 
He says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him. Or John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Jesus was doing in the cross and resurrection was not just a flat historical event. He was establishing God as the God above all gods. He established the fact that God will never have a rival. That Yahweh alone is God and he dwells forever in his sanctuary without equal and without rival. And he gives his people reason to rejoice and to praise him for his awesomeness. So I want to encourage you to pick a side today. To be done with a flat view of the world that sees only natural causes, but rather recognizes that there is a spiritual reality that is behind and underneath and surrounding everything that goes on here. And you have to decide where you will line up. And I want to beg you to side with the winner. Won't you side with the winner? Won't you submit yourself to the King of kings, the God above all gods? And I want you to do it because it will make you the most happy. This victory that he won over all these spiritual forces, he won for you so that you might be glad that God, your God, is God above all gods. Won't you submit to him today? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled with the fact that, first of all, you are so great and so awesome and so compassionate and so kind. God, would you make us happy to belong to you? Father, I pray that everyone who hears this message would find grace from you to humble themselves and to line up with you. That they might find you to be all-powerful and all-good. So, Father, we love you and we, just, we long for your victory. And we look forward to the final day when we enjoy it without anything to hinder us. So God, we praise you for what is revealed to us here in this psalm about your spiritual power and might. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, in whom you most clearly manifested that power in raising him from the dead. So we praise you in his name. Amen.